0: Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate.
1: And I'm Andrea.
0: And this is a podcast where we read things. Oh, also, she's a librarian and my mom, and I'm me, and a writer, kind of. You can find my writing, you go to my Twitter, it's at Nate Osterman on Twitter. I don't know why I'm plugging myself at the beginning of this podcast.
1: Also, Dried Up Brain has a Twitter account, which is run by Nate, which is at Dried Up Brains with an S.
0: Yeah, because somebody else had Dried Up Brain or something. I don't remember why we had to have that S at the end. But we do. And uh, you can check us out there.
1: We technically have two brains, so it's not that out of the
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it still makes sense. Oh, and then also, fairly recently, I was on an episode of the Nerdy Neighbors podcast. Uh and I'll drop a link to them in the episode description if you want to check that out. We talk about comic books, which is also what we're doing in this episode. Yeah. Because we read the final volume of The Sandman by Neil Gaiman, uh volume ten, The Wake, which has art mostly by Michael Zulli. There's some Charles Vess in here. Is that it? I think that might be it. Daniel Vazo is in the mix. Other people are also in the mix. You can
1: find all of that on Wikipedia and more.
0: Oh, John J. Muth does the
2: penultimate issue.
1: So, The Wake, which Nate said is volume 10, is issues 70 to 75 of the Sandman series, published in 1995 to 1996. And the first three issues deal with Morpheus's Wake, and four through six are standalones but they're relevant to the wrap-up of the end of the series.
0: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I guess we'll get into it. We'll talk about all the issues, and then at the end, I think we'll sort of go over our final thoughts on the Sandman as a whole, and then talk about what we're doing next.
1: Yeah, that's the exciting part.
0: So, issue one, the first issue of this is called Chapter 1, Which occurs in the wake of what has gone before. And it's mostly about the preparation for the wake. So we see all of the remaining endless except for destruction getting visited by a messenger from some mysterious source that is basically informing them, Hey, your brother died and it's time to get ready for the funeral. And it's an interesting thing where the messenger changes appearance as it appears to each of them. So when it appears to destiny, it's like, a dove maybe like a white bird with a black beak and then when it appears to despair it's a bat when it appears to death it's a falcon and then when it appears to desire it's i think supposed to be two lovebirds
1: that's what i thought they were
0: it's two two little green birds and we don't see we don't see delirium's messenger but delirium shows up i'm wondering if the implication is that delirium is
1: the messenger
0: i don't know i i could be totally wrong on that
1: i think that makes sense
0: but they all show up at the necropolis to get the book and the cerements, as described in the the one story from world's end
1: right they end up going to letharge which is the name of the lecropolis the necropolis and they meet some of the characters from that story but it turns out that because they're the endless they can't actually go into the catacombs so they have to build a sort of a surrogate to be their, you know, emissary to go actually into the catacombs to get the book. And then the rainaments of the actual wake, which is just a black, it's like a grayish cloth that has the helm of Morpheus on it.
0: Yeah, the Sarah cloth and then there's the book. Uh So they make a golem out of clay. Uh Destiny and Delirium do most of the shaping of it. Desire shapes its dick, it looks like, in one picture, <laughs> and then gives it a heart. Right. And Despair does something to its eyes, I guess, presumably giving it, like, tears or the capacity to cry or something. And then death breathes life into it, and Delirium names him, and she names him Iblis O'Shaughnessy. Uh, I don't know about the O'Shaughnessy part. I know that's like a Celtic name, and there's like the name of a clan. It may or may not come from the word for like elusive, which might be important, but the Iblis part is important, because uh, do you know what that is a reference to?
1: No, tell me.
0: So Iblis, or Iblis, is a figure from the Quran, and he's like a Lucifer figure. He, I think there's some scholarly debate over whether or not Iblis is supposed to be a jinn or an angel. But either way, he's a non-human figure who is subservient to God or Allah, who refuses to bow before Adam and is thus cast out and may or may not become Al-Shaitan, the adversary, the, the devil. But I think what's important here is not so much that story, though there is some like irony in that this Iblis is a person made from dirt, and the not biblical, Quranical? I don't know what the word is for something that applies to the grant, but the scriptural Iblis refuses to bow to a man made of dirt, which is Adam. But what's important here is literally the name Iblis means remain in grief.
1: Right. And I think he also becomes important in the second issue, where he's almost like the minister who is um, arranging the wake and, you know, presenting the speakers, and doing the sort of traditional role of what a minister would play in a traditional funeral service.
2: Yeah.
0: And so Delirium makes him a jellyfish to guide him through the, to light his way through the catacombs. Uh And he gets the book, The Mysterious Voice, which we, I don't think we ever get an explanation for what it is. But we saw it before, it was the voice that spoke to... Claproth's master, right. when she entered the catacombs as a child, uh, addresses Iblis and gives him the cloth, which we see has his uh, dreams helmet on it and the book. And then he goes back up.
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting because the first of all, visually, these three issues are very beautiful.
0: Yeah, Michael Zulie's art is amazing.
1: Yeah, it has like sort of a rich Art Nouveau feel. It doesn't have, like, a traditional comic book feel. It feels more like um, they're drawing sketches. They're kind of very, there's there's a limited palette. There's a lot of light um, stroke, you know, pencil strokes and things like that. It doesn't have a hard outline. It, I guess, I don't know, like.
0: What I think is going on here, at least what it looks like, is that it is pencils with no inks, colored directly on top of with either pastels or chalk or some combination of the
1: two. Yeah, and I think it gives it sort of like a really rich artistic feel to it. Not like a traditional comic book, book but something. Because like when you think about the Midsummer's Night Dreams, which has a similar palette and a similar drawing style, but it has those darker outlines, this kind of seems more like dreamlike, more light, ethereal. It's really beautiful. And then the depiction of, like, Daniel, you know, he's so kind of, like, godlike. And he really does start to look more like what you think, like, Dream. If you think about Dream, he really looks like the king of the Dreaming. Eh?
2: It's
0: interesting, the depiction of Daniel, because Dream was never really... I mean, he was portrayed as, like, fairly ageless when people drew him. He was just kind of this, like, you know, perfect androgynous being. But somehow Michael Zulie makes Daniel look significantly younger
1: yeah, than Dream. he really does. He, he does look younger.
0: Like, if Dream is drawn to look maybe like he's in his 30s, Daniel looks like he's probably in his early 20s.
1: Yeah, and I think it's kind of... It's a good depiction because he's in this sort of nebulous stage where he doesn't have experience being the Lord of Dreaming. And he's sort of feeling his way through. But then you can also sense, like, from the storyline when Daniel starts to put things back together in the dreaming while the Endless are at the wake, because Daniel doesn't go to the wake. Yeah. You start to see that he is a newly made god who is trying to figure out what his role is, but he also has the memories and the information from Morpheus. Because one of the first things he starts to do is he starts to fix the things that the Kindly Ones destroyed in the dreaming. And he does that, I think, in a way to kind of teach himself how to be dream, but also to sort of kind of put a closure to what happened to Morpheus.
0: Yeah, so I think, sort of jumping ahead to talk about the the story as a whole, I think one of the things that this, these three issues together do really well is uh, Daniel's situation is really interesting because he's another aspect of dream he is dream but he's also not he was daniel he isn't daniel but it's also a situation that is completely alien to any human that has ever lived so they do a good job of portraying it but putting it sort of on the sidelines the emotional center of these three issues though he hasn't shown up yet is matthew who is going through a much more relatable situation in that his friend died.
1: Yeah. So the first thing that Daniel does is he has an interaction with Cain, Cain who is, as we know, upset about his brother being actually murdered. Not by mm-hmm.
0: him. And also permanently. Permanently.
1: So he goes to Daniel with this grudge and this sort of contract dispute where he's upset because he felt like the Kindly Ones broke his path that he had which was that he was the only one who can kill Abel Mm -hmm. and pretty much says you know bring him back so that I can you know have my justification for this contract but what I think it really is is that he really doesn't know what to do with himself if he doesn't have that role to play with his brother
0: yeah well he also he it's not that he wants him back to kill him what he's it's not that he's the only one that's allowed to kill him what he says specifically about the contract is it stipulates that they are a double act right? And that he, he, he all but says, like, I need him here in order to function. And Daniel has asked Kane to describe him and he thoroughly roasts his brother.
2: Of course. He says
0: that, uh, it, the things that have crusted in his sink have developed their own political systems by now. And then, uh, Daniel brings back Abel. And then this is also another important moment is that, uh, Kane tries to call him Morpheus. And he, he declines that name. He says that he's Dream, but he has no right to the name Morpheus, which, like, sort of crystallizes. We we have generally been referring to the previous iteration of Dream as Morpheus. And this is sort of, like, draws a hard distinction where it's like, they're the same guy, but that version is Morpheus, and this version is Daniel, maybe. Pending a more
2: fitting name later.
1: I always felt like Morpheus was the individual entity Mm -hmm. who was the Lord of Dreaming. To me, it seems very natural that Morpheus is dead there's a new king and his new king is named Daniel yeah or whatever he ends up being called
0: because he kind of declines the name Daniel later too but we'll get to that when he when he spoiler alert talks to his mom
1: but I think the thing with Matthew is this sort of Matthew's having this like extended existential crisis that goes through all three of the issues where he really doesn't know how to process the feelings that he has about Morpheus's death. Mm. And I think that's very relatable. He's upset that Morpheus as his friend has died. He's confused as Morpheus as his employer about what his new role is. And then he's also at the same time having this sort of identity crisis of, you know, is he a man who is now a raven or is he a raven who has human thoughts? He's very confused about what, He wants to happen to himself. And I feel like he knows that there's other transformations happening in the dreaming. And now it's a sort of a time to say, like, you know, here's what do I want to stay here in the dreaming with this new dream? Do I want to go back home? Do I want to start something new? So he's kind of trying to figure out what he wants to do. And I think at the one point where he talks to Eve, he Mm -hmm. says, well, I don't even want to go to the wake. And she's like, you should go which is a smart thing because he is confused and he's conflicted, but he needs closure.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, and that's, you pretty much covered it. That's the next scene is him in the raven, in the cave with Eve, having the conversation about whether or not he's going to go to the wake. In addition to the things Zulu does with drawing Daniel as looking younger, I think he also does a good job of drawing Matthew, who is just a raven, as looking like older and more haggard. than he was before he almost has like a beard
1: i also think like if you compare matthew and the way that he's depicted he's definitely more humanized than the other birds and the other ravens like if you look at like odin's ravens they're sort of like they don't have the emotional expression that matthew has but it's
2: almost
0: entirely in And anatomically he's drawn to look almost, except for the fact that he's like a little bit bigger and a little bit, like I said, more sort of haggard looking. He's drawn anatomically to look almost identical to all the other birds that that show up.
1: But it's almost like Matthew is...
0: He like puts his head down when he's confused and like...
1: I feel like Matthew is almost like the stand-in for the reader mm -hmm. who is also going through this sort of conflict, who may be going through this sort of conflicted... Emotional state, and it's, he's very relatable. He's very sort of kind of approachable, and I think like his progression of how he processes the grief that he's dealing with is sort of representative of that how a lot of people grieve.
0: Yeah, uh, and then the next we get a page of some dreamers showing up.
1: It's kind of like the greatest wake. hits of all the.
0: Yeah, we get Nuella who's at one of the free houses, not necessarily in at World's End, but something like it. There's Rose, who's, uh, what is she doing? She's at her mother's house.
2: Yeah, I think. Going
0: she, through, um, she sits by the, the old doll's house and looks at photographs in the glass box. It seems like she's, I assume she was going through Zelda's stuff.
1: I think she is, cause she had. she talks about the spiders in the box. I think this is right after she comes back home from England and she thinks that she may be pregnant.
0: Yeah. Oh, and then, uh, Richard Madoc shows oh. up. Uh, that guy. He's able to put some words together in an order that no one has ever put them before in his head for a bit and then he dreams.
1: Yeah, I think like a lot of people, like Tatiana and the angels, Duma and I don't know if Lucifer is still there or he shows up Lucifer
0: shows up eventually.
1: But Bast is there, Rose, her brother, Hob, Lita.
0: Yeah, I mean, so we, what we get for a while
1: is... He shows up at one point. Yeah, what we get Thessaly. for a while... Sorry. <laughs> I just had a list.
0: What we get for a while are alternating between Dreamer, showing up, and Daniel re- tr- remaking things in the Dreaming. So we see Nuella Rose, and Richard Madoc, and then he remakes
2: Merv.
1: I like how he... It, there's no dialogue. They just show him in sort of the busy work of planting a pumpkin patch and then building the frame of Merv. And then, you know, he puts them together and then he just sort of lights a cigarette and he's talking to, uh, I don't know who he's talking to. He's talking to the
0: Corinthian and some unnamed bird guy.
1: Yeah. And then he's just kind of like, so what the hell are you looking at? Like, then you're like, okay, Merv's back.
0: And then we see uh, Lita, Alex Burgess, and Hobb. Then he tries to remake Fiddler's Green, who declines. He says that, you know, remaking him now would make his death meaningless, and he lived his life, and he just wants to to rest. Uh, And he, he lets him go.
1: I think it was also interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. But th- And then it sort of cuts to Tatiana and the angels, and then you have this sort of small story about Bast who has to sort of siphon off the small amount of worship from a kid at a cat show who falls in love with a cat to get enough energy to get herself to the Mm dreaming. And I think this is really important because this is sort of a very clear indication of like the, the sort of style and what he does when he writes american gods it's very clear that bass is a god that had fallen out of favor and is sort of on the peripheral of the existence at this point
0: yeah 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 i think all the god stuff in this is pretty pretty clear that it's him working through the ideas that he would eventually sort of crystallize in american gods now uh, then dreamers all show up we see that burgess shows up in the dream as a child hob shows up Looking like he did when Dream first met him. Uh, which is important, I think, for the later Hub story in this volume, that he still sees himself as a dude from, like, the Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. doesn't see himself as Robert Gadling, 80s businessman. Uh, Nuella just appears as she did when she worked on The Dreaming. Richard Madog is just in a shitty trench coat and bastard's bass. Fast. She doesn't look quite as old as she does when she's in The Waking World.
1: Yeah, I think that's why she needed to sort of siphon that little bit of magic that she was able to get to sort of make her appear the way that she appeared when she was with with Dream.
0: Yeah. Hob finds out that Dream is dead and freaks out and punches the centaur guy from uh World's End.
1: Who seems like a pretty nice dude. I guess he didn't really deserve that.
0: No, I mean, I think he just he just got a little emotional. <laughs> but, well, he's the one who tells him, "Yeah, he's he's dead."
1: And then Bass has to comfort him.
0: Yeah, and then they see the endless as like giant titans in the sky building this like place where they're going to hold the funeral, and that's the end of the issue
1: and then the second issue starts, and I imagine it's the same artist, because the artwork yes, the same is exactly artist. the same for all three episodes. He draws
0: these three, and he draws the epilogue with uh, Hobb at the Renaissance Theater.
1: I think it's also telling in the first page of this chapter two, in which a wake is held. You see them, and they're building sort of a mausoleum, but you can see this definitive arch, mm. and it's almost like a bridge, which becomes very visually important later on, When as the wake goes on. This sort of, like, bridge motif.
0: Yeah. Now, this issue has a cool conceit where it is in second person. Yeah. The implication being that you are, this is your dream, you're at the wake, everything you're seeing is, well, for the most part, because there's a couple cuts away to stuff you probably wouldn't be able to see, but also it's a dream, so who's to say that's not how it works? But for the most part, everything is supposed to be what you are seeing while you are dreaming at the wake. And we get a little bit of dream logic of, like, random dreamers interacting with each other. There's a lady who's crying blood. There's a guy who has a piece of his old uh, curtain. There's a nice little bit of, like, childhood, like, writing about childhood here where the guy says that, like, the one curtain in his room was friendly and the other was unfriendly. And he wasn't sure how he knew that, but he did know that. And that's like, yeah, that is a thing that kids would do that never really gets talked about, this, like, anthropomorphizing of all sorts of stuff.
1: I think, too, to go along sort of with the childhood dreaming, there's lots of characters, there's lots of crowd scenes, and if you look closely in the crowd scenes, you see a lot of mythological creatures or animals or sort of weird monsters that, you know, Mm -hmm i guess as a child you would imagine but they're not really like fully formed characters it's just sort of the background
0: yeah there's a guy with a sun on face there's a satyr there's a cyclops in a top hat there's a dude with like it looks like he's wearing his there's a hole in the center of his face that's eating a cloth mask that he's wearing uh there's a guy with a rabbit head
1: yeah there's lots of weird stuff and this i mean it it's very rich because there are supposed to be a lot of people at Morpheus's week, so there's lots of characters, there's lots of interaction, there's lots of uh nods to the previous issues that you can see if you really spend time exploring the visual part of it. You see the rabbit in the um waistcoat that's mm-hmm. running up and down the steps a lot of times in the in the Dream castle and you see the Corinthian, so you see lots of like people. And characters from the entire series showing up to, to Morpheus this week.
2: This is where
0: we find out that Daniel cannot, is not allowed to go to the lake. Because it's his own, funeral.
2: You know.
1: Yeah, and I think that's why like Lucian was like, you know, I gotta go. You'll be here by yourself, but you should be fine. He sort of gives him these housekeeping guidelines in case he wants something yeah. to eat or whatever. And then Daniel's kind of like, I think I'll be fine.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh...
1: And, and this we... also, you see, what was his name? The Golem, uh, Elvis. Eblis. Eblis. You see him now, and he's not a mud statue. He's like a fully formed human figure, and he's wearing these sort of monk robes that have the heart on there mm. or that Desire had drew on him, and he has the book, and that's when you realize that he's going to be the the conduit. He's going to be the one who is administering this week,
0: Yeah. And then, for the most part, the rest of the issue is just kind of cuts to, uh, cuts between us sort of checking in on people we've seen throughout the series hanging out at the Wig and talking about their relationship to Morpheus, and then cuts to Daniel, I mean, uh, Matthew sort of working through his whole deal. Yeah. So we see, uh, Calliope. And she talks about how, you know, they were in love, and they sort of fell out of love, and she thought the baby would keep them closer together, and then he didn't. And she sort of acknowledges, like, how much he had changed throughout the series, and that by the time he came to save her from Richard Madoc, he was pretty much a completely different guy. And so she says, like, you know, she had already mourned the version of dream that she loved and just just her mourning a stranger that did her a favor and gave her son the death he craved
1: the the women in this issue are really harsh when they talk about their relationship with morpheus
2: yeah it's kind
1: of like it's completely honest like there's no like you know saying nice things about the dead or whatever i mean Calliope and Thessaly and when they start to give these sort of monologues the only one who says, the only woman who says anything positive about Morpheus is the older woman the homeless woman that shows up in multiple stories. Yeah mad Hetty. Mad Hetty.
2: Yeah I
0: think well it's like I talked about how one of I think the worst parts of the Sandman is this like like whiny Byronic, Morrissey, I have to learn to forgive the women who hurt me thing. And I think that, it doesn't, I think that Morpheus does a lot of changing, but I also think in like 10 years he was writing this comic, Neil Gaiman did a lot of growing up. And this, the, giving these characters an opportunity to talk about Morpheus and his relationship with them in this really frank and kind of, uh, brutal way occasionally is him sort of, Apologizing for some of that b- bullshit earlier in the comic, because it, it becomes pretty clear that like Morpheus is the one at fault in almost all of his relationships falling apart.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. But well, let's talk about a really, a really weird part of it—the part where Noella shows up with her brother, and then
0: oh, this part rules. So, yeah, so Noella shows up and she says her thing about like. Oh, you know, I loved him. It's interesting. Uh, I have this thought about, I feel like in almost any other story, Nuella would feel like a really shitty character and her, like, love for Morpheus would come across as bullshit. But I think here, because Morpheus is such a fully a, st- like, realized and three-dimensional character while still maintaining, like, this this level of unknowability and mystery to him, I think her feelings for him make sense because they're kind of the audience's feelings for him. Right. Like, you would feel the way Noella does about Morpheus if you knew him in person. And so she talks about that, and she sort of struggles a bit with her, her guilt over calling him away from the dreaming in The Kindly Ones. But then a dude in a robe shows up, a dude in a cloak shows up, and while they're arguing about how Clurican had appeared to her as the Bogart in the previous volume and said there's mean poems to her and then pulled the glamour off, and then it is revealed that that was not Clurican, it was in fact his nemesis, the stag that he had created when he strayed off the path in the Dreaming, who looks exactly like Clurican. Except. Except he has antlers. He has antlers. And he's just very casual and calm, and he's basically like, yeah, I'm going to destroy you one day, and it won't be here, and it won't be in fairy. It'll be somewhere where you're alone, and uh, I will be there, and I will destroy you.
1: It's kind of like, a, almost like a nod to the sort of wild hunt kind of motif that we see a lot in fairy stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I like how, like, he's just so super casual about and Cloricon doesn't even seem that upset about it. He's just like, yeah, okay, like that's what's going to happen. Well, I
0: mean, Cloricon thinks he's invincible.
1: I almost want to see that story.
0: I yeah, I actually I would really like to see that story. I am i don't know. I don't know if anyone's ever tried to tell it. I would be interested if, like, Neil Gaiman wants to come back and write that story. I would read it. Uh And then, like, Cloricon does seem kind of upset about it. When he leaves, he sort of has, like, his head in his hand, and then he just immediately goes back to drinking and partying and calling for a fiddler to play. And then Titania is basically like, uh, I'm going to keep my feelings about Dream Private, as I'm sure he would keep his feelings about me.
1: But then you see this sort of, it's Thessaly, Tiana, and Calliope all standing around having a conversation about their former lover.
2: Yeah. Uh,
0: Matthew goes to visit Daniel and yells at him. Daniel says that he saved his life even when he was a baby from getting that knife thrown at him by the Corinthian. Daniel does not, Matthew does not believe that.
1: Yeah, I don't know why.
0: And then they make a deal here where Matthew asks to be sent to wherever the ravens go when they're done being ravens. And Daniel says he'll do it, but only after the ceremony and only if he still wants it at that point.
1: Yeah, and I think that's good because that gives Matthew time to sort of figure out what's going on. They never actually tell you where the ravens go.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm, well, it's important. I I think a little dude I like to call Cain might have something to say about that. Because there's a couple things that don't get revealed. Are, we don't find out where the ravens go. There's something else. We don't find out what the voice is in the catacombs.
1: Yeah, that's true. Another thing I thought was interesting was that Daniel remade Gilbert, and he remade Abel, and he remade Merv, but the griffin, he doesn't remake; He gets a new griffin.
0: Well, if all of these things happen in chronological order, then it makes sense. Because he hasn't remade anyone, and then Cain shows up and says, remake Abel. And then he starts remaking people, and he gets to Gilbert, who says he doesn't want to be remade and if the next thing he does is go to deal with the griffin and choose to let the original griffin rest and get a new griffin from another place then that makes sense like that's him learning
1: yeah, that makes sense
0: and then but it turns the the guardians into again another sort of m- metaphor for daniel himself where they're the same it's the dragon the pegasus and the griffin but it's different because the griffin is different right They're the same, they're, like, the same thing. They are the guards of the door, but they are a different configuration with presumably a different, like, chemistry between them because one of them is completely new. Uh, Rose talks to Lita and says that she's pregnant. Lita is super dark and tells her to kill it. Kill it now before it breaks your heart. And then there's a really funny interaction where they're walking away. She's got, Rose has Jed with her, her brother. Who looks like uh, Shaggy now. Yeah,
1: I was just going to say, he really does. I mean, he's a teenager now. But you know what? I kind of over Lita.
0: Yeah, no, Lita sucks.
1: And it, I mean, it's just like, she never takes responsibility for the things. She's kind of like Thessaly. She's not like a lot of the women that are depicted in, you know, and even Calliope to a certain extent. They, They never take any responsibility for the choices that they make.
2: I think
0: Thessaly takes responsibility for the choices she makes. She just doesn't care. Uh, I don't know, Lena's a weird character. I mean, she's a tragic figure. Like, she's manipulated, but she lets her, not that she lets herself be manipulated, but like, she gives into, to rage and into looking for an easy solution like a superhero when she's actually in a much more complicated story. Um, but she's a real sad sack and a jerk <laughs> in this part. But then they're walking away and Jed's like, oh, you know what's weird? I, that, Woman and her old man used to live in my head. I know.
1: (laughs) It's like she's presented with Jed, who has a legitimate beef to hate her. Yeah. And he doesn't, but she hates everybody that she has no legitimate beef to hate. Yeah. Is she not aware that Daniel is now the new dream?
0: I think she's aware but doesn't understand it because it's really fucking weird. And it would be hard to understand.
1: But being pregnant for five years in a dream world is not weird?
0: But that's like a more of a traditional superhero thing what's happened with daniel is this like weird like meta mythological thing where he's like still him but he's an aspect of this being that transcends human concepts i mean she has a moment with him later where i think she does start to understand what has happened
2: uh what else happens
1: we see a lot more of the. Uh, we see a little monologue by Thessaly, where she talks about her relationship with Dream. We see some of the DC characters. We see Hob again.
0: Oh, there's a part with Lucian that's interesting because Lucian again raises the possibility that Dream engineered this whole thing. His uh, he what he says is, uh, "Charability. I think sometimes perhaps one must change or die, and in the end there were perhaps limits to how much he could let himself change." Just like the closest the book comes out. He comes, like, right out to stating the thing that I had said before, which is that, like, the book he's using death as a metaphor for change and the, like, struggle of trying to, you know, become a better or at least a different person. Uh Yeah, Thessaly talks about their relationship, and that's the same thing we kind of learned before, which is that, like, they were together, he fell in love with her, she wasn't really in love with him, but was enamored of the way he felt for her. And then when he grew cold and wouldn't, like, fight to keep her, she walked away and promised to never shed a tear for him again. And then but then she's crying. Yes, of course. Because it's sad. Yeah, we get to see Batman, Superman, and Martian Manhunter talking.
1: I want to talk about this because these two panels, the one with Superman, Batman, and the Martian Manhunter, and the one right after it, the three men in the trench coats, they're, like, the most talked about panels in this entire issue. So I want you to sort of. Talk us through. What's going on in these two panels.
0: So Superman says is says this thing. So if you get Superman, Batman, and Martian Manhunter. Uh, obviously there's are three, three members of the Justice League. Three of the biggest heroes. It's weird that Wonder Woman isn't there. Because uh, you think Wonder Woman, Batman, and Superman. Are like the Trinity. But Martian Manhunter I guess is obviously there. Because he, he was important earlier in the story. Right. Uh, and Superman says this thing about how. Uh, this is weird, like, all of the, This is a weird dream, like, all of these dreams he had. And he says these things like having an ant's head or being a gorilla or a newsreader. And he's referencing all old stories that have been retconned out of existence. Stories that did happen to Superman, but in this current version of the continuity did not. Weird Silver Age stuff. Um, he was, like, a newsreader in the 70s, like, right before the universe got rebooted. And so now... Th- the idea Gaiman is raising is that those things happen, but they happened in dreams. And then there's this little joke where he says uh, that the dream he hates the most is the one where he's an actor on a strange television version of my life. Have you ever had that dream? And Batman says, doesn't everyone? Because they've both had TV shows about them. Martian Manhunter says, I don't. Because at this point, there ha- Martian Manhunter has not appeared on television. Uh
1: Do you think it's interesting that... Martian Manhunter appears in his full Martian Manhunter outfit, mm-hmm. and then you have this sort of highly stylized Batman, but like,
0: Superman, Superman appears as Clark Kent. But
1: also that they both know that he's Superman, and then they're just talking to him like, he's not Clark Kent?
0: Yeah, well, it's in a dream. If you, if you saw your friend in a dream and he was wearing a different outfit you've never seen him before, you'd still know he's your friend. But I think this is a really nice, like, Thing because it it's what it's saying I guess is that like all of that you know in um Kill Bill
2: mm-hmm.
0: Bill gives that speech about how Clark Kent is the way Superman sees humanity and he sees us as like weak and pathetic and clumsy and Superman is the real guy and this is sort of sort of that idea has been around for a long time and this is like a really. Like, gentle refutation of that, which is like, no, Superman seasons off as Clark Kent. Clark Kent is the real god.
1: I thought this was even more relevant after you had showed you had talked to me about a recent comic book that was Batman oriented that you were reading, in which, in a, I guess, is it a spoiler to say that Daniel makes an appearance in it? I don't know if
0: it's a spoiler. It happens in the second issue. Yeah, Dark Knights Metal has, has Daniel show up and interact directly with all of the DC comics characters and with superman and batman in particular uh and he guides them through the dreaming and i think there is a point where both of them say oh this seems kind of familiar
1: what do you think of the next one i don't i i really wasn't sure what was going on i know constantine is in there and he has his trench coat and of course he's drinking
0: one of them is constantine one of them i'm pretty sure is the phantom stranger i'm not entirely sure who the third guy is uh I mean obviously there's lots of characters with trench coats in the DC universe. I mean there in a later uh not a later but in another book that Gaiman wrote for DC he uh brings up this idea of the trench coat brigade which are like four you know mystical oriented characters who wear trench coats in DC comics John Constantine Doctor occult Mr. E the Phantom Stranger and Rose Psychic. I don't know which, like I said, I don't know who the third guy here is supposed to be. It might be Wesley Dodds, he talks later, but when we see him later, he looks like an old man. But I think it's just a little joke about the long tradition of it trench coat says, wearing characters. It's
1: John Constantine, Dr. Occult, and the Phantom Strange.
0: Okay, Dr. Occult then, yeah. That's a, Dr. Occult is a more obscure character than the other two.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It meant, like, the research that I did found out about something called the Trenchcoat Brigade.
0: Yeah, so in Books of Magic, it's a story about a, a kid, Tim Hunter, who finds out he has the potential to be the greatest wizard in the world, and the various coated characters show up in the issues as, like, mentors to him. And then some, there later on, a different writer did, like, a spinoff series that was about them teaming up that was called the Trenchcoat Brigade. Hub sang it out.
2: Yeah. Talking Hob, about peeing.
1: Hop has to process a lot of adult feelings that he even though he's an optimist and he's practically immortal, doesn't seem like he has much emotional growth other than his awareness that like doing some of the things that he did in the past are now considered inappropriate or bad. I mean
0: Yeah, he's also he's he talks about how he worked out that he had spent six years total peeing. Like it, he's really like it feels like, as the story goes on, the weight of just how long you've lived is starting to weigh on Hob uh, more and more. And this is kind of a funny example of that. Uh, so then
1: the book's cut to a small interlude where we see Matthew talking with the Endless. And I think what's interesting here is that Death is depicted in a red dress. And she's not wearing her traditional black garb.
0: Mm-hmm. They asked uh, Matthew to speak at the funeral, he says a weird thing where he talks about how and it's, it's like, oh, you know, I remember Tom Sawyer, and they show up in the middle of their funeral, and uh he does a very good impression of Morpheus, and he says, wouldn't that be just like him to show up halfway through? And Barnabas is like, no.
1: But I think that's kind of like what a lot of people were probably, a lot of people probably thought that when the issues first came out, and Morpheus was dead. I think a lot of people were like, Oh, he can't possibly be dead. He's going to show up again. He's going to come again, or whatever.
2: We've also been
0: watching Daniel. um, I keep calling him Daniel because they both have normal ass human dude names. We've been watching Matthew work through the stages of grief, and now he's at denial. Yes, he only is in denial for like two panels, but he does get to denial eventually. Well,
1: he's a raven. He doesn't have he doesn't have as long a lifespan to mourn Morpheus as as you know the endless do.
2: I think this
0: whole... This issue in particular is really interesting to me from, like, a like structural standpoint because this feels like a thing you would not get in a similar comic today. Comics last for, like, runs are so short now, and unless you're, like, a really successful independent comic, you don't really get these, like, long runs with a single writer um, like you used to. And the idea that you would reach the the big dramatic climax of your story and have a couple issues that are literally just, like, no stakes, just the supporting cast hanging out and, like, talking about the main character of your book is... It feels so out of... Like, it would not happen now for the most part. And it's... it's, I think it's useful. Like, this feels, like, right to have this at the end of this story.
1: Do you think the reason why that... Do you think Neil Gaiman was as big a draw when he started writing this as he is now?
0: No, this is what made his name. I think by the end of the book, he was a superstar.
1: So but it I, wasn't like, we're going to let Neil Gaiman do what he wants. They took a chance on having him write such a long story arc. Well,
0: yeah. I think like the idea was just well, to keep the book going until he doesn't, until it stops being popular. Or he doesn't want to do it. But when the book started, he, Really, the only other American comic he had written at that point was Black Orchid. So it was like, let's take a sh- chance on this, like, up-and-coming writer. And then as the book went on it became this huge thing, by the end, he was like, you know, mega superstar. I mean, you know, this the book ended up being really important to getting comics recognized in literary circles. We talked about that with the Midsummer Night's Dream issue. But yeah, I mean, I don't think the plan, I don't think anyone from the beginning was like, Oh, this will last 75 issues. But it did.
1: So this is, chapter three is the final Morpheus. Yeah,
2: in issue. which we wake.
1: In which we wake. And you sort of see all of the people coming together. The house of remembrance that the Endless built for Morpheus is complete. The um shroud has been laid across on the altar. And you can see the form of Morpheus underneath it.
0: Yeah, it's a really cool visual effect where the slab is empty and we see a panel of Iblis laying the shroud uh, and it seems like it's just laying flat and then in the next panel he's finishing laying the shroud and we see Morpheus's form under it.
1: I really, this is one of my favorite of the sort of layouts, the sort of stylized layout that they use for the the actual wake part of the service and then you see one of the you see a long tall panel of one of the endless and they're sort of drawn in this art nouveau style and then each of them has this sort of mound of flowers that come out from the bottom of their where their feet are and sort of goes across the bottom of the page and then you see these short little panels where each of the endless are talking about their brother and then it starts with destiny and then you can see them talking and I think this sort of Almost, it's almost like a stained glass window. The design is sort of very beautiful and they're drawn in this Art Nouveau style with these rich sort of flowers and these motifs symbolizing them and, and their job as part of the Endless as well as sort of on the side telling this story of what their you know, their eulogy is for their brother.
0: Yeah. Destiny's the first one to speak and uh, he is very formal and he basically says, my brother was very good at his job and now he's dead. Uh, which, and he's reading it directly from his book. We also, like, in a little aside, two panels right out that Mad Hedy and Hobb knew each other. And then we see, uh, Daniel with the guards and he's, like, petting them and they're like, yeah, this is how we know you're different because Morpheus would never do that. He would, you know, he would feed me after the pe- Pegasus is like... He would feed me apples from his hand, and he was very gentle-mannered and kind, but, like, he wouldn't have petted me.
1: I think that's also part of what makes Daniel seem so young compared to Morpheus, because Daniel is a child that gets morphed into this young adult god, but, you know, he's still childlike in that he wants to pet these animals. I think it's sort of a callback to when he went into the dreaming and he was a child. Yeah. And he was, like, friendly with Goldie and he sort of interacted with the people who live in the dreaming.
0: He's also... Matthew says that thing about Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer spying on their own funeral and they're like, that's not... Wouldn't that be so like him to do that? And Barnabas is like, no. But also, that's what Daniel is doing. He's hanging out outside of the hall, like, not quite listening in, but like sort of paying witness to his own funeral. Well,
1: I think and he's awesome. distracted
0: from that when a hobo with some, uh, shows up.
1: Well, first we see Desire and she does her.
0: Oh, it's in between. It's De- Destiny, and then they're hanging out, and the hobo shows up, and then Bast speaks and talks about how they, you know, they weren't weren't lovers, but. You know, they were, they have this connection.
1: Yes, I see. He shows up at the very last panel and then it cuts to. Yeah, but you kind of
0: already know who he is by that point, right? He's got the vest. Uh, Bast talks about how they weren't lovers, but they were, they have this connection and she regrets the things she didn't say and that she's, he's gone and she's old. And, I mean, this, this feels like the end of the, the, like, Bast is gonna die arc that we had seen throughout her appearances. Like, this. Makes sense that this would be, like, the last we would see of her. Uh, there's a cut to Jed and Rose sitting in the audience talking about whether or not she's pregnant. And uh
1: Jed's just sort of- the
0: Emperor of the U.S. is sitting on one side of them, and dark side of the new gods, the embodiment of evil in the universe, is sitting on the other side of them.
2: <laughs> Nash. It's
0: another Jack Kirby creation. And Jed says that families both rock and suck. Yeah. Which, like, kind of is the... One of the major theses of this whole story. Yeah. Uh, and then Desire talks. And it's basically just like, uh, everything would have been better if my brother and I didn't know each other. He sucked.
1: I like this Sorry depiction dead, of no. Desire, though. This sort of very 1980s Duran Duran, androgynous mm-hmm. Desire, wearing this, like, tuxedo suit that's a very feminine cut.
0: They're wearing, like, a baggy tuxedo with opera pumps. And, like, an ascot, but no shirt.
1: Yeah. So it's kind of, it's, like, all in on this sort of androgyny, which I think is very, I think it suits Desire very well. And I think this depiction of him or her is sort of, or they.
0: Yeah. I think the thing with Desire is sometimes Desire presents in a masculine aspect. Sometimes Desire presents in a feminine aspect. And sometimes it's some... Desire presents somewhere in between. Also, when um Destiny is... I mean, you know more about flowers than I... When Destiny is speaking, he's surrounded by blue and pink flowers. I don't know what they're supposed to be specifically.
1: They look like hollyhocks.
0: That's important symbolically, and I don't remember why, but I know it is.
1: And then Desire has the red roses. Yeah, the roses,
0: which have been a recurring motif with Desire uh-huh. from the beginning. Also, is there something to... No, never mind. Uh, They're just standing at a slightly different angle. Uh, Then we cut back to Daniel and the hobo and its destruction. Yes. She's Mm -hmm. passing through on his way to somewhere else and he has... It's interesting because we have all the other Endless are there with the dead Morpheus. And they have their moment of remembrance with him. But Destruction, who's all about change and moving forward, has his moment with the living Daniel. Which I think is really appropriate for his character. And he he sort of gets to see that, like, you know, he was both right and wrong. Morpheus changed, but he changed in a way that was, like, not changing. Mm-hmm. He didn't abandon his station. He didn't shirk his responsibilities. He faced everything that he was head-on, but in the end still became something very different than he had been before.
1: I also think that Destruction doesn't want to see the final manifestation of his brother. And prefers to sort of have this memory of the last time they met. Yeah. And then I think he sort of... He's also, I guess, one of the first Endless to be optimistic about the change that Morpheus goes through.
0: It's also him shirking his responsibilities in the last one. He's destruction. He's like, oh, I'm not destroying things. I'm not creating things. But he... Going to the funeral would require her, him to face the direct role he had in Morpheus's death, because it was in the quest for him that Morpheus killed his son and opened himself up to retribution from the Kindly One. He, whether intentional or not, helped to facilitate the destruction of Morpheus, which is not a thing that I'm sure he, I don't think is a thing he wants to confront.
1: But I also think in like a whole meta way of him being destruction, he's destroying He's still destroying things, but almost in a more of an emotional as opposed to a physical way. Yeah, but he
0: refuses to... He, when refusing to show up at the funeral, he refuses to acknowledge the act of destruction and instead spends time with the resultant creation.
1: I thought that he didn't want... I thought maybe he didn't want to show up in the funeral because he did not want to have to deal with the confrontation with delirial oh, sure and part of despair, it. because I mean, Despair's monologue and and the way that she's depicted mm-hmm.
0: well, that's the next one.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like it's really heartbreaking.
0: And then she says she lost two brothers. Like she's clearly also get de- delivering a eulogy for destruction and also for her past self at the same time as she's giving the eulogy for Morbius. Who'd have thought that Despair would be a really sad character?
1: Well, we know she's a sad character, but I I think she sort of gets short-changed. And her and Destiny Destiny really are the least fleshed out of all of the Endless. Yeah. I think what we
0: get of them, though, is really powerful. And for both of them, genuinely heartbreaking. I talked before in Brief Lives about how I think Destiny is actually the saddest character in the
2: series. Uh, yeah, and I
1: think he's sad because he's kind of like everyone's like, oh, you got a short change and he's like, no, no, it's good, it's fine I like being this way mm-hmm. I Actually, like- I think
0: it's super cool that everything happened the way it did
1: Yeah, I love Order and I was not surprised because I knew what was going to happen I saw it in my book, so I was not shocked or hurt or had any emotional fallout from what had happened which I think is kind of like
2: I can't tell if uh Desire
0: is standing with wilted roses or if they're supposed to be like nightshade?
1: I think yeah they're kind of, it's hard to tell because the leaves are sort of not distinctive
0: but they're like a dark purple and I can't tell if that's them trying to draw the wilted roses or if that's they're supposed to be purple flowers uh, she cuts herself some more which obviously we know it means she's crying but she can't cry mm-hmm. uh, it's very sad uh, and then wesley dodds gives a, a eulogy and he basically says like i didn't know the guy but i feel in a way that everything i had came from him which is true like in story we know that he he exists because he's sort of the universe trying to make a surrogate sandman but then also metaphorically because like dream is the lord of stories and he is a character in a story uh, and he's like a sweet old man uh duma doesn't say anything but cries crystalline tears other angel, I don't think he shows up. I think one of them has to stay in hell one at all times. But it's funny they send the silent one to speak at the funeral, and Ramiel stays behind, pro- presumably to sulk because he hates being in hell.
1: But yet he is the one who, of the two of them, is the best at administ- being a manager of hell because he's much more of a bureaucrat than mm-hmm. Duma.
0: But it's interesting because Duma, not, I keep saying it's interesting. A notable thing is that Duma has the key to hell around his neck when he shuts up. And well,
1: I don't think he would have left it there with Remyel because he didn't trust him.
0: But yeah, that's the thing. I I assume exactly that's what I why I was saying it was notable. Is like I think Duma probably is afraid that Remyel is going to pull Lucifer.
1: It's interesting. You, is Lucifer here? I Chris, yeah,
0: Lucifer shows up, uh, like, two pages later. Oh, okay. He doesn't say anything. He just is there, and he witnesses uh
2: Matthew's eulogy. Uh, yeah, and
1: then you see Odin is there, and he's there when uh, Delirium is speaking, and she has... Um, she's surrounded by daisies, and then she also has these sort of lawn lawn ornaments that are like an octopus. and
0: Flamingo and some butterflies. Yeah. Uh, she says, I really like her thing that she says. She says, he was my big brother. He really was. I was always a bit scared of him, but I'm not scared of him anymore. I'm a bit sad of him instead. Okay, that's all.
1: Yeah, and it sort of has this very small panel where it's very sad. It's her... And Barnabas shown from the side, and she's dressed like a little, uh, like a fairy, like a little princess fairy, like a child would wear, and then you see her and Barnabas sadly walking away.
0: Also, her page is laid out in the inversion of the other Endless's pages. Instead of having the one long panel at the side with the smaller panels next to it, it has the smaller panels on top and a big, like, wide panel at the bottom.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's how they always depict her. She's slightly different from her siblings.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, We get Destruction and uh, Daniel talking some more about optimism um, and, you know, wondering whether or not things will work out. Destruction calls entropy and optimism the twin forces that make the universe go round. which, again, it feels kind of like the comic getting like almost outright stating it's one of its own theses.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a little bit heavy-handed I think for that. And then Matthew gives his his eulogy.
0: Well, hold on. I want to go back to the the page with destruction because I think there's there's two ways to read this. One it it could be heavy-handed. But the other is I don't I think the comic does not agree with destruction most of the time. I think destruction is because he he's very likable and charming and he is written and drawn To be, like, likable and magnetic and charming. But I think he is kind of a pathetic figure. I don't think the book, as a whole, looks, like, positively on the kinds of choices that destruction makes.
1: Well, they kind of depict him almost, like, as a goofball with the hobo bindle. And a sort of, like, oversized vest, which is, like... Clearly, in the 80s, is this kind of like failed actor, worthless, like sort of.
0: It's like when we talked about Hellraiser, he's very much like the same kind of guy that Frank is. Yeah. In the beginning of that.
1: Well, I think that's it. I mean, this. It's
0: like a dude who has too many Sting albums. You know
2: what I'm
1: saying? Yeah. I think you're right.
0: Like, the book likes him. He's He is a... Like I said, I think he's a likable character. You're supposed to like him. But I think, in the end, the book is way more on dream side than it is
2: on destruction side.
1: Yeah, because I guess... Well, I mean, if you think about the struggle that Morpheus has about... You know, he knows he's predestined to die, and about picking a replacement and all the stuff. And then, sort of, destruction's kind of cavalier attitude about... I don't want to do this anymore, but I don't want to make someone else do it, so I'm just going to abandon it. Like, that kind of, like, Morpheus is kind of disgusted by that sort of, like, juvenile solution that destruction comes up with.
0: Do you think the book would have been better if destruction had suffered some form of consequences besides loneliness for his actions? Because I think, like, I think we are supposed to take what he has done as a negative thing. We're supposed to see all the people that die because of him in the wake and be like, this guy has made a horrible mistake and needs to take a long, hard look at himself. But unlike Morpheus, he never suffers directly because of what he's done.
1: I don't think you can have that, because I think destruction is supposed to be that sort of black sheep of the family who never has to pay any consequences.
2: Yeah.
1: He he is like Frank from the Hellbound Heart. He really is. Mm.
0: Because
1: he's just but he's not as gross.
0: No, but he does kind of suck. I love Destruction, but he he sucks. I mean, it's the same way that you would for, like, like, your, the black sheep of your family. You'd be like, he's great. I wish he would just fucking get it together.
1: Well, I think that's why it's very clear why Morpheus has such a long, involved, extended relationship with Hob. Mm-hmm. Because in a lot of ways, Hob is like Destruction. Yeah. Hob just chooses not to die. Because he wants to just keep on. I mean, fucking around. I mean, he like really doesn't ever do anything concrete, and the things that he does that are concrete are really poor business decisions.
0: Yeah, well, we'll talk about that when he comes to play it because there is there is a bit of him doing. I mean, I love Hob. Hob is my favorite character in the in the whole whole thing.
1: So then we see Matthew's monologue where he talks about his boss. In this
0: complicated relationship with him, like sometimes he was his boss, and sometimes he was his friend, sometimes he's like a god, but he's dead now, and like, what do I do? And I mean, it's him reaching acceptance, and I think it's also him, again, being the surrogate for the reader, working out our feelings about Morpheus and the way that his story ended. Uh, we see Mazikeen and Lucifer looking on. Uh,
1: it's interesting because Mazikeen is not wearing a mask yeah Which she usually wears she had worn in the whole when she appeared in the series i think it's also interesting at this point where you start to see morpheus's shroud sort of more from being like a covering of his body and being like almost like wrappings and and becoming yeah, like a mummy becoming like a mummy yes uh i like the bear giving his little monologue
0: oh i wanted to go back to to matthew's thing though he says that he was the most important person in the world to him uh you know and now all that he has left of him is his memory uh but i think it's also like this is him coming he talks a little bit about daniel being like a kid and i think this is him like coming to the decision that he makes at the end of this yeah he's
1: like working through it in the monologue about what he's going to do with his
0: i think he's also in a way in this this scene kind of a stand-in for neil Gaiman. yeah like, talking not about Morpheus, but about Sandman the book. Could be. Yeah, and then we just get a, a bunch of cuts, quick cuts to different realities. So there's the bear. Is it just a random bear? Is it supposed to be the uh, the
2: uh, elder man? I thought it was. That
0: makes sense. Uh, Odin. Uh, Shivering Jenny. Somebody who's dead. Oh, that lady from... She's the lady from... Uh, the end of Game of You. The one that he made the the scary for, I think. Yeah. And then uh, I think the other person that talks here is the travel agent guy from Brief Lives.
1: Yeah, the demigod.
0: Yeah. And then uh, it talks about how you're always going to be haunted by these. Again, it feels like Game and the Writer addressing you, the reader, about Sandman, the book, and his hopes for the <laughs> profound effect it will have on you.
1: Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. It's also the stand-in for the reader who has to process the fact after 72 or 73 issues at this point that it's coming to an end. There is no hope that this wasn't, as Matthew suggested, the chance that Morpheus will come back.
0: Yeah. Death does not speak at the funeral. But I feel like that's fine because she kind of gives her eulogy to him at the end of The Kindly
2: Ones.
1: Yeah, and then also, I mean, it kind of is like this, after the eulogies are done, and now it's Death's job to usher him out into, you know, out of the dreaming and into the underworld, and I think that's sort of her role, and then, because it starts to change from being like a house, it becomes a bridge, and Death is talking to people over the bridge, and then you see the gods... Standing on the river side and you see the slab has become a boat. It mm-hmm. becomes, you know, it morphs. Yeah. I like this one panel where you see Odin and Osiris and you see Bass I think it's and
2: Anubis. Anubis,
1: yes. And they're standing there and they're just watching this sort of, it looks almost like the Nile, this river, and it has all this lush greenery around it and you see like the waves coming and then you realize that now it's a boat and morpheus is on this boat
0: yeah and then uh we get this really beautiful page where like the the whole time the river has sort of been turning into star a star field and then he's in space and the boat has his head on the at first it has the the helmet um, yeah it goes from being a bird's head to the helmet to his head and then he pulls up to a dock where Orpheus is standing on the dock and, and watches as the boat goes over some falls and like silently has his sort of final moment with his father. And then the boat is a bird again and it flies off into a star in the sky.
1: Yeah, cause then when the last couple of panels when it goes back to Daniel, you can clearly see that star hanging in the sky. Yeah. It's almost like Orpheus is there in the underworld to meet his father.
2: Yeah, which is uh good
0: and appropriate. And because their deaths are intertwined, he gives him his death and that puts him in the situation that allows for his own death. And we get like a last little bit of people milling around. Dr. D is there. I don't know if you noticed him. No. Very small.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of creeping behind the tree. Yeah, mm. I see him. I see you, Dr. D.
0: Daniel and Lita have their moment where he says that, like, he's not Daniel. He was Daniel. She should not have, like, he sort of admonishes her for seeking vengeance. Uh, and then gives her his marking to keep her safe because it's in a refutation of what. Thessaly had said in The Kindly Ones about her being
2: in constant danger.
1: I think it's I mean, this is when you start to see that there's going to be a difference between the way things were done in the dreaming with Morpheus and how Daniel handles things. Because Daniel makes a conscious decision to send all the dreamers away mm-hmm. so that he can meet with the his siblings, the Endless, in, in a setting where they're just by themselves.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's also gives like this,
0: he's gentle and forgiving to Lita. I mean with the whole book we had seen Morpheus become more and more human until he had to die and literally become human in a way by becoming Daniel. Matthew shows up and says that he doesn't want to leave and he's gonna he's gonna stick around and be an advisor to to Daniel and help him out.
1: And I think that Daniel knows this all along, but he wants to give Matthew this aspect of free will where he makes a decision himself. And I think Matthew's one of those characters, he's always going to do the moral thing. Because yeah. I think he has learned a lot from his past. I mean, there's very clearly indications that he's evolving, you know, in his aspect. It's oh, like, there's
0: also a part where they offer him a drink and he says no because he's yes. sober.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think there's also, in uh, there's a reference to of when Delirium makes sort of a reference about driving the car. Yeah. And she sort of makes a nod to the fact that Matthew taught her how to drive that car. Mm. But I think it's interesting because, yeah, because Daniel, I mean, he's nicer to the people even as he sends them back.
2: Yeah.
0: He sends off his uh, Burgess, uh, gives him a candle to guide his way so he doesn't get lost in the dreaming like he had been before. Here comes a candle. I don't know if that's important, <laughs>
1: Uh, well the candles I think also reference to the weird book that that's
0: what the book is called Here Comes a Candle Yeah. or There Comes a Candle or something like that Uh, and then
1: they all sort of there's like this panel where there's a small panel of their faces when they're in a dreaming and then there's a longer rectangular panel when they wake up so you get to see what sort of closure of what happens to some of these characters
0: it looks like he's also freed when Madoc wakes up, it looks like he's also been freed from his curse. I don't know if he deserves that, but it is, like, you know, a mercy he has shown.
1: Right, but also I think he's sort of, you can see, like, some of the panels are, like, Delirium's text, so he's he's somewhat cured, but he I don't think he... But
0: he doesn't have the Delirium text over him. Everyone else does, but he doesn't, which I think is supposed to be a visual indication that he is
2: That he's freed.
0: Back. Uh... Hobb has the most delirium text over him it's cause it' seems like he's he's the one who comes out of this with the least amount of closure. Lita seems pretty at peace when she wakes up, which is is good like I mean she kind of sucks, but also you know she was manipulated by two of the greatest tricksters in history, so
1: yeah, and I feel like it's you realize that the other story characters you're done with them, and I think Hobb's open-ended resolution leads to the fact that there is more to his story that comes along at the very end.
0: Yeah. Uh, Matthew, Matthew and Daniel go to meet with the rest of the Endless. We don't get to see that meeting, but it is like...
1: I think it sort of wraps it up really nicely, because the scene just ends with, like, him opening a door. You only see his arm, he's mm-hmm. opening the door. And then they're sitting down at, like, their very classic family dinner.
0: And then over in the window, we can see the starfield
2: with the yes. star... Over uh delirium,
1: yeah, and I think it's sort of a very good visual sort of and then there's the roses on the table, mm-hmm. you know, but death is once again back in her traditional garb. She has her black outfit on and her arm
2: and it,
0: it feels like even though we don't get to see it, like they're going to actually have this this is the third family dinner we've seen, no, this is the fourth family dinner we've seen, and it look, looks like this is going to be the one where maybe they actually get to have a family dinner and not a weird fight. Uh, and that's the end of the week. We have one more chapter, which is an epilogue, uh, which is called Sunday Morning, but spelled with a U,
2: like morning.
1: Yeah, and I think there's, there's the epilogue, which is this Sunday morning, and then there's Exiles, and then there's the final wrap up, which is The Tempest. Tempest.
0: So Sunday morning is Hob has a new girlfriend, Guinevere, and she takes him to a Renaissance fair, which is such a funny premise, like it's the most natural thing to do with him, Uh, and it's like the perfect like punchline for Hobbes' character to go out on, where he goes to this Renaissance festival. He hates it; it's inauthentic. It's not gritty enough. He's also, still struggling with Morpheus' death.
1: He looks a lot like George Carlin too in this. It <laughs> <He> does. <laughs> it's, it's the drawing. It's it's kind of like a weird comical like fish out of water reversal mm-hmm. in that like. He's a man out of time. Because, I mean, he makes a lot of references to, like, you know, this isn't really authentic. Like, it's stuff you always hear at a Renaissance fair. And he's kind of, like, you know, his depiction of what he actually remembers about the Middle Ages. And what's actually happening at these Renaissance fairs. It's
0: funny because, like, he he's so negative. Like, he's like, oh, you know, actually the Middle Ages were awful and smelly and terrible and miserable. And it seems like he's just being, like, a prick what you got to realize is that he lived through those times for real and chose to keep living. Like, he doesn't, I don't think he looks back at his past as, like, a gross, awful nightmare time and why would you ever try to recreate it? I think he is genuinely heartbroken that it it does not feel
1: authentic authentic
0: and he doesn't see the beauty that made him want to keep living when he was actually living through it.
1: Yeah, because I think he, like, I mean, he's upset about a lot of things and he talks something, like, about something called vegetable wool which ends up being caught in, yeah, and then the beer is cold, and it doesn't stink enough like it did in the actual Middle Ages. So he decides that he's sort of depressed and upset. I don't think he really realizes that part of his mood is influenced by this dream, mm. which he thinks is just a dream at this point.
0: Yeah, there's a moment where he we find out that a bookbinder who works at the fair found evidence of one of his previous identities. But his girlfriend just thinks it's one of his, possibly one of his ancestors. And he goes there, and this is where I think it's like, when you were talking about oh, he never really did anything, like, of value, I think him being a bookbinder was, like, him trying to do something of value, and he's clearly, like, heartbroken. when this guy hands him the book, and it has the dedication to Laurel, which I believe we saw him mourning in an earlier story. And...
1: Yeah, and I think it's good, though, because a lot of the stuff that Hobbes does is really not the best thing. Like at one point where he's a slaver and he has that sort of epiphany about that's not so good. We see that with the story about the Leviathan. And I think, like, maybe he's relieved that his legacy and what people remember about him is not those poor decisions that he made. But they remember him as being a bookbinder, which is something admirable and intellectual.
0: I think it's a really sweet moment for him when he sees that this like somebody is preserving the work that he did. And maybe he doesn't specifically get credit for it. But like someone cares about the stuff that he made. Especially because earlier a big chunk of the early part of this story is him basically begging his girlfriend to be madder at him about the role he played in the slave trade.
1: But without ever actually being able to tell her that he was an actual slaver. Yeah. And then she just sort of sees it as, you know, as the, like, a modern sort of liberal guilt that he feels in general. Yeah.
0: And uh he goes drinking. He drinks a lot. And then he finds, and it's like, such a great little, he, I mean, he, it's a ruin a little bit because he calls it out, but it's such a great little, like, visual metaphor when he finds the condemned grog house on the fairgrounds. And he goes to drink in it, and, like, he, it's this, like big creaky visual metaphor for himself and his own life and like what he's putting himself through right now.
1: But I also think that it's almost exactly like the instance of when he would have, I think he's subliminally bringing back the dream that he has and sort of, even before death shows up, he's sort of becoming even in his like subconscious aware that the dream has visited him in his own dreams before. Mm-hmm. And now he is sort of calling back the parts of the dreams that he had with Dream. And maybe coming to the realization that his dream was an actual thing that happened.
2: Yeah,
0: and you know, he would always meet Morpheus in the alehouse and the inns. And now he's in one. And it's all the lights are off and it's boarded up. And his friend is dead. Uh, and Death comes to visit him and she basically...
1: Tells him it wasn't a dream that it was true. He went to Morpheus's wake,
0: and she offers him another chance to die, and he he refuses again. He still wants to keep on living.
1: Well, because he's like almost like that eternal optimist. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, whoa! Well, I want to see what happens next. I want to spend more time with Gwen. Mm-hmm. You know, he you know he falls in love with these women, and he falls like deeply in love with them, and he ends up mourning them because he's immortal and they're not, but. I mean, it's sort of...
0: He he talks about, like, death being the slow thing. It, like, he says... I'm just going to read what he says. He says, I think it's a slow thing, like a thief who comes into your house day after day, taking a little thing here and a little thing there, and one day you walk around your house, and there's nothing there to keep you, nothing to make you want to stay, and then you lie down and shut up forever. Lots of deaths until the last big one. And we see him talking earlier in this issue about all of the people he knows who have died. Now... Morpheus amongst them and I think it's really beautiful that there's still stuff around the house that makes him want to keep living.
1: Well that's what I think I mean you're kind of really expecting him to like take death up on the offer but then in true Hob way he's like nope and then it sort of gives you this sort of optimism that like in some way there is a part of the story of the same man even like destruction is off on his own and now Hob is still around that there could be things still going on.
0: And then he has a dream where he and Destruction and Dream hang out on the beach.
1: Yeah, that's kind of weird.
0: I don't really know what to make of that. I mean, I guess it gets back to the thing we've talked about before where Hobb kind of is a stand-in for Destruction. And they are very similar characters. But I think that's another thing. Like, Hobb is like Destruction. He, he refuses to accept that. He's this endless wanderer. But he wrestles with the guilt of the things he's done and owns up to the consequences of his actions. And Destruction doesn't. And so we have, you know, Dream who has been destroyed by his inability to change. Destruction who has uh, chased change as a way to absolve himself of responsibility. And then Habu has found this sort of middle ground between the two.
1: I think that Death is seems actually happy that Hobb has decided to continue on, because it's sort of, it's also a homage to Morpheus. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's, I think it makes sense to give Hobb a bigger ending than just a couple panels in one of the wait scenes, because he's such a pivotal... Character and very important to the development of Morpheus as you know, evolving into a more kindly, gentler kind of yeah. His monarch.
0: The first big example of Morpheus changing is when he calls Hob a friend. It's also like Morpheus has two friends, Matthew and Hob. Matthew basically gets three issues to work through his feelings about Morpheus' death. Only fitting that Hob should get at least one.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I feel like it's a good send-off for Hob.
0: Yeah, I I really like this issue. It's a nice, it's funny, it's kind of sad. It's a really like good capstone on like what this character is and what his role in the story was.
1: And I think it's a good epilogue for the series. Because the next two issues are technically standalones. So they follow the same formula where they have you know, they're more of a larger story about something unrelated to the overarching storyline of the man series. And they have very small parts where the endless show up.
0: Yeah, this one is the Exiles. The next one is the one I'm the most baffled about. I think Tempest is a really fitting end to the series. I'm not, into, I sort of get what they're going for, what he's going for with Exiles. I don't think it works as cleanly to me as... Sunday Morning and Tempest do. I
1: I agree with you, but I think it's important that it has to come at the end of the series because this is one of the few... This is, I think, the only time where there's a story where Morpheus is in it and Daniel is in it, and he is Dream and not just Daniel.
0: Yeah, so what's happening in this story is, one, the art is really oh, it's fantastic. John J. Muth is doing these, like, really impressionistic, uh, you know, ink paintings. It looks like, um, you know, classical Chinese art, but occasionally dips into these sort of more, um, detailed, like, illustrative portraits. Uh, it does, it uses traditional panels, but then also a lot of the pages break from the panels and will have elements flow out, like, through the ink strokes, flow out of one panel and into the next. It uses a lot of, like, Negative space.
1: Yeah, it's really. I mean, and it's also very limited. I mean, it's black and white. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of blue. There's a little bit of red. So, other than the very beginning, where there's these sort of watercolor traditional Japanese artwork or Chinese artwork panels mm-hmm. that are colored, the rest of the issue is just very sparsely done. And there's some yellows, some blues, and some reds, but. It's really gorgeous.
0: So we get this character, Master Lee, whos I think in a lot of ways, he's a, he's a metaphor for Morpheus, he's a metaphor for Matthew.
1: He's also, I think, a, he's a symbol of a father. This yeah. is like the wrap-up of the father-son journey that goes through the whole series.
0: So he is this nobleman who was an advisor to the Emperor. Uh, and it's unclear exactly. It's sort of, I think this sort of takes place in a vague, like, mythic... Era of China. Uh, it's
1: kind of like, yeah, there's some kind of um, uprising, the White Lotus uprising, and this man is the, he's he is an advisor to the Emperor, and his son
0: joins this White Ro- Lotus Rebellion. Which
1: has something to do with magic, but they're not very clear about what it is. His son joins this. Almost, it's like a almost like a cult of magicians.
0: I think it's supposed to be sort of. It's supposed to invoke like the Boxer Rebellion. Where they, the part of that was they sort of had this self mythology of like being inhabited by these mythical and historical spirits.
1: A lot of this reminds me, like it is almost like a companion to soft places. Oh, I think this is very
0: explicitly a sequel to that story to the marco polo story so he's his son was involved in this rebellion and was killed and now he the emperor takes pity on him and instead of killing him exiles him and he has to travel across this vast desert uh which is notorious for being populated by malevolent mythical figures like fox spirits and stuff like that and along the way he reflects on his life he finds a kitten and takes it with him. He gets lost and sees a vision of his son. He has a dream about drinking a bowl of tea. A bowl, I mean, no, drinking a cup of wine. Uh, he has this really great conversation with his son where he says, When you were alive, you were all my joy. Now you are dead and I see you only in dreams. And when I awake, my pillow is wet with tears. The kitten is living and it needs my help.
1: I think also, I mean, it's very clear that he meets Morpheus.
0: Yeah, he meets Morpheus in a tent, and they have a little moment together. They uh, talk about sons.
1: A... They talk about their sons, well, of course.
0: Yeah, presumably this is Morpheus. This is Morpheus after he's met with Marco Polo, because he references that and he him giving him sharing his water in the desert. He gives some wine to Master Lee and, and tells him to use the coin he would have paid him with to pay the next person he meets that needs it. Uh, I feel like this must be like either this is right after he's killed.
1: I think it is right Orpheus,
0: after, him. or it's like right before he, like while he still knows he's going to have to do that.
1: So he sets him on his way. And then he's lost and he's sort of journeying along looking for the way back. And he meets another car, another person, which I think in the beginning he thinks might actually still be Morpheus. And then it's very clearly revealed that it's Daniel. You see the green, the emerald necklace that he wears. And then he realizes in this conversation that it's a different manifestation of dream.
2: Yeah, Uh,
0: I mean, he tells him that he's like a hundred years or hundreds of years away from home. Also, before that happens, there's this weird uh, sequence where he finds a claw machine
1: Uh in
0: the desert and gets a bridge out of it and then uses the toy bridge as a real bridge to cross a ravine.
1: And I think that's also sort of going back to the wake Mm -hmm. scene where the house becomes the bridge, becomes the river, which takes Morpheus home.
0: Yeah. Uh, he meets Daniel. Daniel offers to have him come and be his advisor. I think this is a bit of insight into how ravens get
1: made. Yeah, that could, that could be. That could be the, the resolution. But, um, But you never really get the impression from Matthew that he was asked to become a raven, or he was aware of becoming a raven. It's almost like Matthew just wakes up and he's a raven.
0: Yeah, but he definitely remembers being a dude.
1: Right, but I don't think he remembers any conscious choice to become a raven
0: I mean that might not be what this is, but I mean that's all we know about as far as like humans coming to serve dream in the dreaming uh but master Lee declines because he's got this responsibility again, like he is a very morpheus like figure he has his responsibilities and he needs to execute them he He has this responsibility to the living kitten to to care and guide for it. And he knows that, like, if he goes to this town on the other end of the desert, he's gonna die there and he won't see, you know, the young emperor will never send for him to come back. He'll die before then. But he still has to do it, like, because, you know, if he didn't, he wouldn't be himself. Uh, we see Daniel release the, uh, the writers that we saw in the Marco Polo story.
2: Right. Definitely. He
0: sends them on their way, but it's unclear if they're gonna die or not. Uh, and then there's this, the guy, one of the writers says, Omnia mutantar nihil interit, which means, everything changes, but nothing is truly lost, which ends up being the sort of big message of this story at the end. Uh, at the, end, at the last page, Master Lee says, Only the phoenix arises and does not descend, and everything changes, and nothing is truly lost.
1: And I think that's sort of he, he in a way advises Daniel in his new role, mm-hmm. and it's almost like Daniel is trying, still trying to figure out like how he's going to rule the Dream World, and then eventually he repeats what Master Lee and the Rider said to him,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that's when you finally realize what actually the phrase meant, and of course Daniel likes cats because. Dream likes cats. And there's a cute little scene where he's petting the cat.
0: Yeah, we see that they're not so different. I think in a way this story is almost a compressed version of the entire story. Like, we get this part where Master Lee says, uh, we cannot evade our responsibilities that which is Dream can never be lost, can never be undreamed.
1: Yeah, and I think it's kind of like, even though we don't see Master Lee's son, it's almost like they're both saying goodbye to their children. And they're both moving on to a new phase in their lives. Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of, it's, yeah, I think it's.
0: Do you think that there's, in some way, the cat, that Master Lee is a stand in for Morpheus and the cat is a stand in for Daniel?
1: I think so. I think, I mean, I kind of really got the impression, even though it's not. I mean, Lee at one point thinks that Matthew, that Daniel is Morpheus' son. I think that either Morpheus sees Matthew as a son like figure. Mm -hmm. Or he identifies with Daniel as a stand-in for his own lost son. Yeah. Because I think he sees it sort of as like a second chance. Mm -hmm. In a way, a second chance to be a better dream, but also a second chance to be almost like a father. Because he is sort of father like to Daniel throughout the story before Daniel becomes Dream, yeah. And they have this long sort of implied conversation where they have a father son heart to heart, you know. And then Matthew's like, "Well, what could you possibly talk about? He's a child."
0: Yeah. And then we get Tempest, which is the last issue. This is drawn by Char- Charles Charles Vass, drew this is a, very much a sequel. And the way that that story uh, exiles is a sequel to Soft Places. This is very much a sequel to Midsummer's Night Dream. Well, I think the in, same artist
1: in Midsummer Night Dream, he mentions that he actually he I don't
0: know if it's a Midsummer's Dream or Men of Good Fortune when we'll first
2: of the mean.
1: Oh, Men of Good Fortune, where he says he commissioned two plays. Yeah. Because there's the part where Shakespeare is in the Yeah,
0: he's in the tavern with Marlowe. In the tavern. And after he talks with Hobb,
2: Dream goes over and talks to him.
1: I don't think this is is as successful as Midsummer Nights. I don't think it's as beautiful. I don't think it's as interesting. And I think sort of like Shakespeare's like the sad sack. I'm
0: gonna be a bit of a pretentious joke. It's cause you're not a writer.
1: This is that, story is, is for writers
0: heartbreaking.
1: <laughs>
0: like I like this story more than a Midsummer night's dream, but I, I think Midsummer's dream is more successful overall. Like and I think this only works because Midsummer's night dream happened before it.
1: But I think but, that this I think that the Tempest itself, even though on the trappings of what the Tempest is about, about a magician and magic and books and uh artifacts that are empowered and viewed with magic, it doesn't seem like as much of a natural fit into the Sandman universe as a Midsummer Night's Dream.
2: I think the
0: ending though makes it fit and is like heartbreaking and beautiful. So what, what this story is, it, it's just a chunk of time at the end of William Shakespeare's life as he tries to write his final play, which is The Tempest, which is the last play that he owes to Morpheus. And we see him interacting with his daughter. We see him interacting with his wife, with his old friend Ben Johnson. Uh, we see the ways in the, how that the different little moments that he's experienced directly inspire things in the play. He sees um some charlatans parading around a dead Indian, a dead Indian, air quotes, corpse, to uh get money and that, how that directly inspires some stuff that happens in the Tempest. We see him talk with a priest. We see him talk with Morpheus. And I think just this very gentle reframing of the Tempest makes it so that Every character in The Tempest becomes a metaphor for William Shakespeare. It becomes a metaphor for Dream. It becomes a metaphor for Neil Gaiman and for writers and artists in general. This is a story about, like, the craft of writing. The question of, like, where do your ideas come from? And, like, how that is actually an incredibly complicated question to answer. And they come from your life and sometimes they seem to come from another source. There's a little bit in here about imposter syndrome. And about whether or not uh, Shakespeare making a deal with Morpheus meant anything at all. Like, did he need to make a deal with Morpheus? Or was making a deal with Morpheus just to convince himself that he was a good writer? And that he need, like, does talent exist? Is it just practice? Like, all these questions get raised here. And, you know, so much is made in this of, like, the sacrifices of being a writer and, like, the different paths... Shakespeare could have taken and whether or not things would have been better off if he had just failed at his first play and returned to Stratford and just been like a bricklayer or whatever.
1: I think that makes sense because of the one part where he's actually talking to Mor- Morpheus visits him mm-hmm. on at right at the moment that he finishes the Tempest before he finally finalizes the epilogue. And Shakespeare goes through this sort of tangent where he wonders that If Morpheus didn't commission those plays, in a way, had made him a success. Yeah. That he had sort of almost had this kind of, like, Faustius kind of deal that he made with Morpheus. That by accepting the commissions, he made a pact almost with the devil to become a success. And then Morpheus assures him that, that he would have been a success no matter what.
0: Well, Morpheus says, have they not made the deal, he would have gone back. And just been a normal guy. But there's this question of like, did making the deal with Morpheus make him a better writer? Morpheus says no, it didn't. All he did was open a door within him. And it's unclear if he means that literally or not. It feels like making a deal with Morpheus could have just provided to Shakespeare like, well, obviously I'm a good writer because I've got devil powers making me a good writer. And that's just gave him the confidence to actually look like develop the skills that were already within him.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just, I I didn't really hate it. I just didn't think it was a successful.
0: Well, I think the thing that makes this is when Shakespeare starts questioning Morpheus about why he wanted this play. Because we know why he wanted him in Summer's night It was to preserve the fairies. But why did he want this one? And he says, I wanted a tale of graceful ends. I wanted a play about a king who drowns his books and breaks his staff and leaves his kingdom. About a magician who becomes a man, about a man who turns his back on black magic, but this rough magic I here abjure. I break my staff and bury it certain fathoms in the earth, and deeper than did ever plummet sound, I'll drown my book. And then he says, "But why?" And he said, and Shakespeare insists on knowing why. And Dream says, "Because I will never leave my island. I am, in my fashion, an island." He knows he knows even back then that he he can never make the choice that destruction made. He can never abandon his responsibilities. And one day it will destroy him. And in the way that a Midsummer Night Dream is a like a nature preserve for the fairies, this is a window into another world for him. It's the same thing as the question he had asked. When when Shakespeare asked him the question of like, H- what would have happened had I not made the deal with you? And Dream tells him what would happen. This is that for him. This is his view into another world where he was able to make this decision. He knows he can never make. This, this is him, you know, you get the impression now that when Dream has his conversation with Destruction, when he contemplates whether or not he's going to kill Orpheus, what he's seeing in his head is Prospero. And he knows he can never be Prospero.
1: I have one question that's totally unrelated to that. There's this one panel where Morpheus invites Shakespeare to his house for a drink. They decide they going to have a glass of wine to celebrate. Are you talking
0: about the proto-Merv?
1: Is that what that is? Yeah,
0: well, see, before they used pumpkins for jack-o'-lanterns, they used turnips. Oh, and we okay. see a man with a turnip head, who is presumably some either an earlier incarnation of Merv or Merv's direct
1: predecessor. Very interesting. I was kind of like, that's weird.
0: Yeah, I like that. It was a nice little visual joke. And then at the end, the ending I think is so beautiful, where he he wakes up and he realizes that uh, Dream has left him to write the epilogue, but only with his own words. And I'm about to cheer up. I, I don't know. I don't know. This story is really affecting to me.
1: So at the very end, he says, the last panel before the very end, has Shakespeare and he's writing, and he says, and my ending is despair unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. And then he says, and... As you from crimes would pardon me, let your indulgence set me free. And then the end, the very end, the last panel is this um, like a little panel where he sort of tells what happened to Shakespeare, or what they think happened to Shakespeare. And he talks about his Shakespeare's daughter marries this ne'er do well that Shakespeare doesn't really like, and she ends up having a terrible marriage. And then Shakespeare dies. And that his wife, who lives on a little bit further, dies right before the iconic first folio of Shakespeare, which is one of the world's most well known, rare, and scarce books. Mm -hmm. And then that's the end to both the series and to that particular issue.
0: Yeah, and I think, like, in that moment when he's writing that last epilogue, like, Shakespeare, he becomes dream at the end of his life he becomes he's shakespeare at the end of his life but he's also no Gaiman at the end of this story and like every writer at the end looking at their own work without any illusion about like where it came from and who they were and having to fully face like you know this is the person i was this is the life i lived you know this is
2: my
1: final work i think it's natural to sort of feel very emotional at the end of the series because as a reader you have invested so much emotion and energy and just you have like committed yourself to this long story and these characters are very personal to you and you whatever character you choose to relate to holds some kind of very special value to you and it's almost like it's perfect because you're you're at the wake for Morpheus but you're also at the wake for yourself as the reader because you're done. Yeah. And instead of like reading a book where you know, okay, this book is this many pages and then we'll get to the end and then we're done. There is characters we talk about this a lot on the podcast and on with the novellas especially. There are characters that are so emotionally important to you. And so important to sort of pop culture and the cultural references in the, in the society that we're currently living, that the end of the stories of what happened to those characters is almost like a loss for you. And I feel like you feel that, especially in a series like this, Mm -hmm. because it's so, so important. And a lot of people read this series at a point in their life where it's really relevant. like you know a lot of people pick up a series like this when they're dealing with a loss or they're going through this sort of the tumultuous like time of like puberty or young adulthood so you can relate even more to a character like Morpheus and I feel like that sort of emotional response that richness that you feel that connection that investment that you feel to those characters is sort of It shows you what a good writer Neil Gaiman is. And it also shows you how he is so good at taking the literature and the visual and putting it together into one package that makes people have this really, really deep emotional response. And I feel like things like when he goes on later on to do things like Caroline, the graveyard book, where he combines graphics and writing... It sort of cements that sort of connection that people feel between like what they, what's in their mind and what they visualize and what's on the page and they can actually see.
0: Yeah, I think like this, the Sandman takes a lot of advantage of the medium of comics, like you said, in combining visuals and narrative and, you know, giving us insight into the story that we wouldn't be able to get through a purely prose presentation. But I think what it also does, which is underrated, is it takes advantage of the actual serialized structure of a comic. Because if he tried to write this whole story out as a novel, it would be like a million pages long and completely unreadable.
1: You know what? I hate when people say, like, this is a blank for blank. You know, Mm -hmm. like this is a story that's like the serialized stories of Charles Dickens before modern times. It is. Yeah. But I hate that people, when people say things like that, but it's like, it's like the great expectations for black generation, but it's true. It really is. It's like a new kind of serialized story. You know, I mean, just like the way that like Charles Dickens serialized stories, like galvanized the whole society. You know, people were crazy about those stories and the writing. And I think it's the same thing. Like, people are sort of, they connect deeply to this series because of the way that it's presented.
0: Yeah. And I think you can, you can look at Sandman as a whole, all 75 issues of it, and say that's one story that is a, this huge, sweeping, epic tragedy about the death of Morpheus. And, but, because it is a serialized comic, he's able to tell all these other smaller stories throughout, and the sort of, the whole thing sort of unfolds like a fractal, and within this larger tragedy, there's romance and comedy and weirder, more experimental stories, and they all, each individual piece, which can be a story on its own, still serves the broader whole of, you know, telling the tragedy of the Sandman.
1: But I think that, I mean, the Sandman series itself, it's sort of groundbreaking because it sort of sets the tone for this like you talked about this epic comic book series these really long story arcs because like in the past you know like they were kind of like short story short or arches or there were multiple arches and they would come together I think this sort of sets the tone of almost like you know, not the genesis of graphic novels because graphic novels existed before Mm -hmm. Sandman, you know, very iconic graphic novels, but I think it sets the sort of tone of what a modern graphic novel can achieve. They're not just you know, comic books, they're actual works of art visually and writing and they sort of become this sort of
0: I mean, I don't think that like Obviously, it's not the first to do this. But I think Sandman, like I said before, is very important in breaking down the artificial barrier between comic books and literature.
1: I also think it sort of moves the graphic novel from being something that should be marketed to young adults to something that's marketed to everyone. I mean, obviously, there's some sophisticated storylines in Sandman that might not be... No, time frame wise, something that a young adult might not be ready to deal with. But I think instead of saying like, okay, graphic novels are just stories about people who go to space and fight monsters. There's so much more going on. Yeah, but I think like what Neil Gaiman is really good at, like mm. creating these sort of rich characters, this sort of beginning of like building this world you know, how he can take like history and art and mythology and folklore, put that all together. I mean, we talked a lot about the genesis of like this story and the Kindly Ones being sort of the the base layer for what comes, you know, later on in the writings that Neil Gaiman does, you know, like Neverwhere and American Gods and things like that. But I think he really sort of does a lot to sort of blend like all these sort of Traditional literary things into something that's modern and fresh and speaks to sort of pop culture. There's lots of references to superheroes, DC comics. Mm -hmm. There's references to cultural things as well as pop culture things, which I think sort of makes it a little bit more relatable. I mean, if you tried to pitch someone a story about, I'm going to write a comic book that's in essence like about greek mythology and greek tragedy people will be like "Hmm, i don't know it sounds a little boring but then you're like okay i'm gonna have Martian manhunter i'm gonna have space you know i'm gonna have all these different things in there fantasy elements sci-fi elements it kind of like makes it more approachable
0: yeah i think so and
1: shakespeare too
0: yeah yes shakespeare (laughs) I'm now so embarrassed that I, I started tearing up about the, the Shakespeare story at the end of this.
1: Well, I, I will tell the story about how I had was reading The Snowman with Ionespo, his Harry Hole series, by myself in the house when the was away at college and my husband was working nights. I scared myself so badly that I could not go to sleep. So that's embarrassing to me that I would read a detective story and be so terrified that I could not even go to sleep.
0: I, I mean, I am I'm a very, uh, emotional person. I have a lot of strong emotional reactions to art. Usually it's confined to when I'm experiencing art and not when I'm just talking about it.
1: I feel like <laughs> people need to make themselves open and willing to be moved by art. I mean, I talked about, I don't know if I talked about it on the podcast, but I talked about the first time that I saw Nighthawks. Mm-hmm at the Edward Hopper painting at the Art Institute and I cried. Yeah. I stood in front of that painting and I cried because when I saw it in real life, now I'm getting scared <laughs> off. It was so such a, a strong emotional response that this painting drew from me. Mm-hmm. And I felt like if you can't experience art of any form, music, poetry, comic book, whatever, anything that you can If you can't get that emotional response from something, Mm -hmm. then you need to allow yourself to be open to have those experiences.
2: Yeah.
0: And so getting back to talking about Salmon and not about how much everything makes me cry. Uh, I think that this is a flawed work. We've talked about a lot of the flaws with it, but I think it's still, even with all of those flaws that like time has made more visible. It is a masterpiece. And, like, I mean that in a literal sense. Like, when you get to the end of this story and you look at it as a whole and say what you will about Neil Gaiman's other works, this stands as, like, I think pretty irrefutable evidence that at least at some point in time, he had mastered the art of writing.
1: Well, let me ask you to, uh, let me pull, like, an ultimate Sandman Corinthian. Let me ask you a let me make a comment that's more of a question that is actually two part Okay. About this series, do you think the flaws make it better?
0: Um, I don't know if they make it better. I don't think I would trade them out. Like, I would not want a a version of this story that was like completely sanitized and had the rough would edges sanded sus- off.
1: Yeah, would you be suspicious if this was completely perfect? Yeah, I think so. And then also, this is the second part. This is part 1A. Do you think that this has the quality to withstand the test of time? I mean, it's already over 20 years old. Yeah. But do you think 50 and 60 years from now, people will still be reading Sandman and talking about it?
0: Yeah, I think absolutely. I think that this is like, it's got just has so, like I said, it just has so much to say about, you know, storytelling and writing about like responsibility. And change and family and death, like, it's a very full and rich work. I mean, we got, like, 20 hours of conversation out of it. I I think, like, this is still, this is going to be around for a long time. And as more and more sort of academic courses start to take on, you know, comic books and graphic novels, I think this is going to, I 100% believe that Sandman is going to wind up in, like,
2: the canon.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I already feel like Neil Gaiman is poised to be one of the relevant writers of this time period. I think it's interesting because as we were going through the series and I was talking to people and I was sort of talking about the Sandman series, every single person that I talked about, they were like, oh man, I read the Sandman and it's great. And then they start talking about the part that was most relevant to them. Mm -hmm. And it was so interesting because when I talked to older people who had read it in the 90s and they talked about the, you know, the parts and then younger people who were picking it up now and someone who was actually still reading through the series. And it was interesting to see it's like what parts of the Sandman series were relevant to the person who was reading it and talking about it. But it was kind of interesting because Everyone who read the series wanted to talk about it. Yeah. No one's response was, yeah, I read that. It was pretty cool.
0: Yeah, like, and I think it's like, it it invites discussion. I mean, I think, again, I'm going to say something really dramatic. I think that Morpheus is, is like, one of the greatest literary characters of all time. And he is set up in such a way where, like, you you need to discuss him. Because he is feels fully realized and fully three-dimensional. We see all of these sort of complicated nuances to him. But he's still has a level of mystery to him. There's still all of these questions you have about, like, him at the end that you you have to talk about, or they're going to nag in your brain forever.
1: Well, that's why I think a great story and a great character will do that, that the conversation will continue long after the book is finished. And I think that's the amazing part of this series. I mean, I really... I enjoyed it. This is the second time we went through it. And Mm -hmm. interestingly enough, both times that I have read the Sandman series, I have read it with you.
2: Well, yeah. I mean,
0: well, I it makes sense. I feel like the Sandman is a pretty solid middle ground between the things we're into. You know, it is a comic book, and it's very literary-minded, and it's very concerned with, like, you know, books as, like, an important vessel worthy of preserving you know we get a lot of Lucien as the librarian in it and you know it's full of all of these references and stuff like it makes sense that this would be a comic that we would share together
1: yeah do you have anything else to add about the series overall uh that won't take 20 hours to tell us no
0: i don't know i think we pretty much said everything we need to say about it for right now uh this is the third time i read it Every time it gets me super emotional at the end. Uh, this was the first time that I had a, such a strong reaction to The Tempest, as and I had you're before. reading
1: it at a different period in your life. This is yeah. what we were talking about, books that hit at exactly mm-hmm. you know, the perfect moment that you need to read them when you read them. So like your experience of reading it when you were in high school, and your experience of reading it when you were in college, and reading it as an adult, they're going to be different.
0: Yeah, I was, this, this time reading it through, I had a much stronger reaction to The Tempest, and I had a much stronger reaction to Brief Lives, than I had before. And I think my opinion on Destruction almost completely changed. Like, when I was talking about him as being a much more sort of, like, negative character, uh, that was not a thing I had felt about Destruction the first two times I read it. I was pretty fully on his side of like, yeah, fuck it, fuck responsibility, do whatever you want, and now I'm just like, it's kinda sad. <laughs> He's kind of sad.
1: Well, do you want to finally announce what we're what our next comic adventure will be?
0: Yeah, so the next ongoing series we're going to do is uh, Swamp Thing. We're going to read the Alan Moore Swamp Thing run. It's six volumes, so it won't take us as long to get through as the Sandman, but I think there's a lot there to discuss. I think it's a, a, a like, fitting choice. We had talked about Swamp Thing a little bit at the beginning. It kind of laid the groundwork for this sort of series that Sandman would become. It's the prototype for, I think Swamp Thing is the prototype for a Vertigo series, and Sandman is very much like the epitome of a Vertigo series. Does that make sense?
1: It does. I've never read Swamp Thing. I know who he is, mm-hmm. and I know a lot about hearing Nate talk about Alan Moore, so I'm excited to start it.
0: Have you ever read anything by Alan Moore? Will this be the first?
1: Uh, did he do From
0: Hell? Yeah, he did From Hell. I
1: did read that.
0: Okay, so yeah, so you've read, you've read one of his, his later works. I guess mean, it's weird saying later works now that that book is pretty old <laughs> at this point. Uh, but that's how I thought about it before. Yeah, so, um, we're gonna read Swamp Thing. Are we gonna
2: do Swamp Thing Volume 1 for the... Okay, so... You're the boss of that. What cool. do you wanna do?
0: So next episode is a novella episode. Uh, and we're going to do, what are we doing? We're doing, so What Kind of Day Did You Have? by Saul Bellow. One
1: of is, my favorite writers.
0: Yeah, we've talked about him a bunch of times before on the show. I've never read this one. You've never read it either, right?
1: No, I haven't.
0: Yeah, this came about because I was looking through ebooks I had. And I had the complete short stories of Saul Bellow. And I was like, oh, there's a novella in here that I've never read. Uh, let's read it for the show. So we're going to read that. I think that'll be pretty cool. Uh, and then, then, episode after that, I guess we're gonna do Swamp Thing Volume 1? I think so. Uh, that, uh, I think the current printings, that's just called Swamp Thing Volume 1. Uh, when I had first read it, it was called Saga of the Swamp Thing. Uh, and it covers, uh, yeah. The first few issues of the Alan Moore series, it'll be cool. I'm ex- I'm really excited to read it and to talk about it. I don't- it, it's got a lot of similarities to Sandman, but it is very different. It's much more of a straight up horror book, at least in the beginning.
1: Is there anything about Marxism in there? I need to prepare myself. Uh,
0: is there
1: I, any trigger warnings politically in there?
0: I I mean, I think it starts with an evil corporation literally trying to make money off a of Swamp Thing's body. Well, so, look,
1: as a Gen X,
0: I think, we're good. I
1: think you've sold me right there. So, all
0: right uh that was the end of swamp of sandman it feels weird no more sandman we'll 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 come back and we'll read overture at some point but for now we're we're done with this series so uh spoiler alert stay tuned and one for one last time sweet dreams <laughs>